we started as a business with three of us in an office and today we're 4,000 people doing whatever, 1.7 billion of sales. I genuinely loved hard work. It was a get up early culture in our house and do work. If you really want to be anything in life, well, you're going to have to now do it through hard work. Nobody ever bounces their grandkids on their knee and tells them how much money they made. You bounce your grandkids on your knee and you tell them stories about what you did. And so what did you do? What impact did you have? What were you part of? There are 2,755 billionaires in the world and 2,024 of them are self-made. Let's find out how they did it. Welcome to the Unicorn Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Perhaps we could start off the podcast by you telling the audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me, Simon. I am the founder and chief exec of AO, which is probably what I'm best known for. I also spend a lot of time with onside youth zones trying to help level the playing field for uh, underprivileged kids. Uh, but if I go all the way back to the beginning, I, um, my childhood, I was super lucky. I was born into a loving home and uh, and a secure and safe home and my dad had his own business so we uh, we sort of lived around an entrepreneurial family it wasn't a great business in truth uh, although he was lucky enough at one point to sell it uh, but we lived under the cloud of that business potentially going bust every year and so what we also did was we created or mum and dad created lots of what we used to call lifeboats so uh, so part of our house, we had two spare bedrooms in the house that weren't used. So mum turned that into a guest house. Uh, we, so we sort of grew up uh, knowing that. Uh, and she also had a, a catering hire business where she'd bought some plates from the potteries when the potteries was in decline and cutlery from uh, Sheffield when that was in decline. And so she used to rent those out. So I got the job in at the weekends of loading about six dishwashers in the garage, of cleaning those. Dad once, rather hilariously when I look back at it, uh, bought a Rolls Royce that he very quickly realized he shouldn't have done and couldn't afford, but he got so tempted at the time. And so uh, so mum used to do um, use it as a wedding car at weekends. And, uh, and so there, were, there was the sort of survival instinct of working hard in lots and lots of different, very small micro businesses. Uh, that we, the way that we used to think about that was if, if anything happened to the computer business that dad had, then there was another business that was ready as a lifeboat to, to scale up. Uh, and, and what I found through that, I was really interested by it. I was interested by the business dynamics that surrounded them all. I genuinely loved hard work, which was just as well because it wasn't optional. It was a, you know, it, it was a get up early culture in our house and do work uh, where lots of my friends didn't and they used to lie in at a weekend. We didn't. We were up at six o'clock in the morning and, and I just always grew up with that. Uh, and, um, and maybe because my interest lent that way, I wasn't very good at school academically. I was great on the football pitch. So, so that, that got me through lots of other stuff if, at my school. If you were good at sport, they, sort of, they weren't that bothered about the, the academic achievement. Uh, uh, but it was always working, whether it was a paper round, uh, whether it was I used to buy the deformed gingerbread men or the reject gingerbread men from the Warburton's Bakery and sell them in school when I was about 11 or 12. Uh, and, uh, but because 
So, so I had always had that desire to want to do something, but because I wasn't academic, actually, when I finished school, left with pretty much nothing academically of any materiality, uh, and and so my choices were really limited, and and so I, uh, I basically ended up. I did a little bit of travelling for a couple of months uh, to escape being in the country while my uh, A level results came out. And uh, and when I got back from that, I didn't have many options in truth. So I ended up working in a warehouse and it was in the warehouse for a kitchen and bathroom distributing business that got me into the kitchen industry. And, you know, nobody leaves school thinking, oh, I want to go into the kitchen industry. Uh, so you just sort of happen into the kitchen industry. Uh, and that got me then through various different stages of selling kitchens uh, selling things to kitchen retailers that then ended up selling kitchen appliances. And and so, you know, sort of the timing of selling kitchen appliances then met with the opportunity of the internet arriving and and kind of the the next, the last twenty years, if you like, then is the is the history of that. And and that's where AO.com came from. So that's a sort of very quitted quick potted history from being a naughty kid at school to to where we are today. It's a great story. It just it fascinates me just hearing about um, entrepreneurs' parents. And so it sounds like your, your dad was the risk taker and your, your mother was the entrepreneurial manager of that risk. Was, was that the dynamic within the family? No, I think they were both entrepreneurial. Uh, you know, we, were, we viewed it, I guess, as we were all in it together. And, you know, I remember a... Um, a dinner conversation one night where we we sat around the table and uh, it was there was a I think it was the recession of the maybe the early nineties and uh, and Dad's business was about forty percent of it was done to government and um, and they used to pay on ninety days if you were lucky in those days and and he used to get fourteen days credit from the likes of Toshiba at that time. And so basically, the more they grew, the more they had to borrow. And, uh, and the recession, and, and, the, and that was secured on the properties in the business. And basically, the, the bank came along one day and said, yeah, we're not quite happy anymore with that security. Happy with the trading in the business, but we want some more security. So basically, we want you to give a personal guarantee. Uh, there were three directors. We want to give you a personal guarantee for everything that you own. And so if the business goes bust, you truly lose everything. Uh, and, and I remember Dad sitting us uh, around the dinner table and explaining this to us. And we'd have been, I don't know, 12, 13. And so you understand what he's saying, but you don't really understand the magnitude of it. And of course, what's your answer as a 12, 13-year-old kid? Uh, whatever you think, Dad. Uh, mm. And you kind of align behind that as a, as a family. So, so I think... I think everybody was in it together and everybody had different roles to play. Um, and, uh, and so, so I, d I don't think it was divided up in that way. It was just, um, you know, well, you crack on with that. And, and in the meantime, I'll do, I'll try and build some hedges for us, if you like, over here, if that doesn't quite work out, but that's probably the best still the main bet. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, it wasn't a you... She did that. He did that. Dynamic. They were, you know, they were very aligned on it. 
I, I just imagining in my mind, you know, your father rocking up in the Rolls Royce and, and your mother thinking, right, how can we turn that into a business? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, but still, I mean, it's, it, there's, there's something really interesting in this. I think, um, you know, I, I think having a, the right people around you that kind of support your entrepreneurial journey is key. But, you know, having that ability to um, work together as a family. Again, a lot of people talk about work-life balance and it doesn't, I don't think it exists if, if, if you should include your family. I think the way you're talking about it, they, okay, a 12-year-old might not necessarily know the implications, but you, you remember the lesson, right? But your, your parents never went bankrupt, right? They never, they never actually, it never, it never came to that. They, they, they actually did well, right? Yeah, they survived. Uh, uh, the, so financially they survived, uh, but, it, you know, they paid a high price from a, a sort of family and relationship perspective uh, when you, you know, and, and, and you know, and lessons that you learn there, you know, they're some of the biggest lessons that I learned. You know, dad never came and watched me play a game of uh, football at school. And, you know, he was always working. And, uh, and when I look back, uh, the stress and the pressure that he must have been under uh, was incredible. You know, knowing all the time that anything that can go wrong can cost you everything that you've worked your life for uh, is a pressure uh, and a stress that very few people get to experience in life, thankfully. Uh, and, and people only see the success stories quite often. They don't see a lot of the misery that sits behind some of it, and um, and the sort of entrepreneurial tag is is always painted as the you know all the nice bits of it, and uh, and and there's a ton of negative stuff that goes with it as well, and and it really is an always on job, and you know when customers email me, they get a reply, and they don't always get a reply from me. Um, but they get a re if they email me directly, they will get a reply from one of the team within probably an hour, uh, and and that's true if I'm you know the amount of times that I'll sit in bed having a coffee with my wife in the morning, checking my emails to see if any customers have sent me an email, um, uh, I, I, you know, and it is truly always on. You are always thinking about it, and and that requires a certain level of uh, resilience. And you're right, it, it requires the whole family to be kind of mentally invested in it. Uh, and they need to understand that. But equally, it isn't all about work as well. And, you, you know, you're also right when you say you only get one life. Uh, and, and, you know, I know lots of sort of perceived successful entrepreneurs that look back when they're 50 with regret in some ways of what they've missed out on. Uh, when other people that are seen as less successful might have had a much more fulfilled life, uh, and I, you know, I, I think it's it's very easy to sit here and say, you know, be really aware of that. And I was really aware of that, but I didn't see our three older kids grow up very much because I just wasn't there. So practical reality reigns as well. It's a super difficult balance to strike. As as a child, did you? Feel it. I mean, if your father's not going to the football matches, do you do you remember? Were you resentful, or did you understand? Did he explain it well enough? Or did, what was that like? Yeah, so we, in those days, you never talked about it. I think it was. Um, I think there were different times. You know, there, there's lots of things that you kind of talk about today that you didn't talk about in those days. You just got on with it, and um, uh, so so no, we didn't have open conversations about it. Uh, I didn't, I never resented it. I, I never knew any different. So I, I never knew to resent it. 
Um, you know, there were things like, you know, we'd, we'd finish a football match and we'd get dropped off back at the school and there, w- there were no mobile phones. You couldn't send a text to say we're 20 minutes away. You know, you, you would get dropped off back at school and then you'd go to the payphone and ring up to say, I'm back. And then somebody might set off in 20 minutes. You might be sat there for an hour in the freezing cold and the rain waiting to get picked up. My kids today, yeah, <laughs> that would be incomprehensible to them. Mm. But I didn't know any different. So, so yes, if, you know, I think you can judge an incredible amount looking in the rear view mirror very critically. But, I, you know, I, I started by saying I was really lucky. I grew up in a really loving home. And I did. Uh, so, you know, nobody was setting out to, to do anything bad. Uh, it, it was just the way the world was. And, and it's, it gave me great opportunity in life to live through that, for which I am really grateful. Uh, so, you know, I would never want to moan about whatever might not have been perfect in the rearview mirror looking back at the time. I was, you know, the postcode lottery of birth, I was dead lucky. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one, and I think you know there's a story, isn't there, about uh, twins that are born to an alcoholic, and one grows up to be really successful, and one grows up to be an alcoholic. And when they were interviewed and asked how they got there, the one that was an alcoholic said, "Well, I'm an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic," and the one that's successful says, "I'm successful because my father was an alcoholic." And I guess there's that you know what you take from it can you know because when I listen to your story and 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 you know maybe you wouldn't have been an entrepreneur because you're like, hey, if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I I would have missed out. I would miss out on seeing my kids and I, the, the sacrifice and, and so on. Right. So it's interesting that you you took it that it it meant that the entrepreneur was for you. Yeah, and I think um, so. Interestingly, my brother went on a very different course. He was a complete academic, and uh, you know, and graduated from I think it was London Imperial, and then went to INSEAD to do an MBA and worked for Shell and worked for Tesco, and then went to Australia to work for Woolworths. And in the end, actually, did start his own business, but on a completely different path and trajectory. And and Daniel, my brother, and I couldn't be more different in almost every single way of outlook of just about everything on life, having grown up in the same home. And and it's interesting, you know, I see with the um, you know the with with the time that I spend in onside youth zones. You know, uh, one of my phrases is that talent is evenly distributed and opportunity is not. And I, mm. I see that so much all the time. And the onside youth zones are about leveling that playing field and, and trying to give those kids that have the drive, have the energy, they have the creativity and the innovation and the passion and they have it in spades, but they properly don't have the opportunity. Um, and, and yes, you can work hard to get through that and all the rest of it. Um, but you do always need an inspiration or a leg up or somebody to get you started uh, on something, whether it's wise words or whether it's a hundred pounds to get started or a thousand pounds to get started or whatever it might be. Um, and a hundred pounds is an enormous amount of money to somebody who hasn't got any money at all. Uh, so, you know, I think that um, it, it, is, it is about all those different elements coming together um that that really make that and it's interesting that, that the opportunity uh, at point I, I think that you know you mentioned earlier you know you had your, your your exam results and you decided to go away for a few months because you you know you were a bit perhaps nervous about them and then you came back and almost had 
almost almost no choices. You know, the opportunity wasn't there for you, so you went and worked in in, in, in a warehouse, and that's what actually well, that was probably your lucky break. Not having those opportunities to do other things, um, in a way, maybe is w- what ended up you being the success you are today, right? In, in an ironic twist. Yeah, no, the the, seren- the serendipity of that is absolutely true. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and and it was tough, you know, working in that warehouse was really hard. But growing up from the, you know, I I always loved hard work, so that ne- that wasn't a, a problem to me. And I, I, it was really interesting. So when I did that, um, there were there were two things concepts that I lived with. One way, one was that. Uh, most of my friends had gone to university, uh, friends from school, and uh, and that wasn't an option that was open to me because of my grades. And so what I worked out was that when they leave university, they will be three years uh, ahead of me in qualifications to go and get a job. But the advantage that I had was I had three years to go and get real-world experience, connections and contacts in a way that they wouldn't build them up. And I had to make those worth more than a degree. And so I very, very consciously thought about that. The other thing that I thought about was my opportunity cost of time. So my opportunity cost of time was zero. So I might as well be at work. And if there's an opportunity to go to something where I might meet somebody, well, I might as well go and do it because what else will I be doing? And, well, the only other thing I'll be doing is probably socializing, having a drink with my mates in the pub or, you know, having fun, let's say. But the return on investment on that fun was likely to be zero. But the return on investment of being at work, being the first in, being the last out, building my reputation as an incredibly hard worker and committed and having the right attitude, that would create a return for me. Um, And so actually for somebody that hadn't applied himself academically, I had a real moment in time of, if you really want to be anything in life, well, you're going to have to now do it through hard work. So how do I think about that? Um, And I remember, you know, sort of counseling myself many times, you know, when you don't necessarily want to be the first in or the last out or all your mates are going to the pub and making a conscious choice to say, well, you can't just live your life spanking it, having fun all the time, because that kind of runs out at some point. And so, well, why don't I do that now? Uh, and and when I look back, that was a really mature thing for me to think at the time. Although I didn't think about it in that way at the time, I just thought about it really practically. I I, I think there's so many lessons in in that uh, download there for people to pick up on. I think that um, sometimes there's almost like people call it an opportunity cost, right, to do things. And and I think what you're talking about there, the, lots of, you know, the brand building of yourself, your own everyone learns in different ways it's not just academic learning right there's actual practical skills of dealing with people for example and and learning a craft understanding how something works right and investing in those those things is 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 something that there's plenty of ways to get an education right so there's oh, such a focus sure. today isn't there on, on go, go to university and, and and so i left school at 15 as well and i also feel like by the time people came out of university I, i'd had six seven years in the workforce you know i i knew how to work and i think there's actually a skill in learning to work isn't there so it's 
for those listening, I think there's, some, there's something really important there. There's plenty of ways to go and learn. If, if university isn't right for you, then, then go into the real world and, and learn. That's a skill in itself. Yeah, for sure. And, the, and yeah, I believe deeply in the soft skills. So, um, so on art and science, if you think about it in that way, artists always get paid more than scientists. Uh, and centre forwards normally get paid more than goalkeepers. In you know, so so the the art element. So you tend to learn more of the science element at university. So it's very functional. And without being critical of university um, professors, you know, the, most of them haven't worked in the real world. Uh, most of them haven't. You know, most of them had a relatively sheltered life. They create incredible value for the economy, and they provide an incredible job. And teachers, you know, just the, the difference that teachers make in people's lives is quite incredible. So it's not to be critical. It's a very practical view that um, they they will teach something very functionally from a textbook rather than the practicality in the real world, which is the application and the interpretation of the um, of the teachings, if you like. And, and that's where a lot of the value sits. So um, I, I was having a conversation uh, the other day with, uh, with one of the guys at Rothschilds that runs their retail business. And, and, and we were talking about the damage that COVID's caused. So if you've come out of university in the last two years and you were amazingly lucky to get a job at Bain or Rothschilds or somebody like that, the way that, the, you know, the whole monkey see, monkey do thing, uh, where you know people learn by osmosis in the early stages of those roles of being around people uh, and you know knowing when to drop a shoulder, being able to pick up on the body language, so all those nuances of things that make a difference. Why can one person sell something and another person can't sell something? Is normally the last one percent of understanding that nuance. Uh, you know, great presenters. Um, people that do great podcasts, um, you know, how many people try and do a great podcast? Uh, there's very few people that do them brilliantly. And and so, and so that is true in every single walk of life, and it's all in the knowledge of the nuance. And so you don't tend to learn the nuance at university. You don't learn the nuance staring through a screen, doing one meeting after another on Teams. You learn it through human interaction and getting out there and putting yourself out there, getting outside your comfort zone, making mistakes and learning from them. Uh, and, uh, and if you're not prepared to do those things and you're not prepared to push your comfort zones, uh, then, you know, the, then stay in a very comfortable life, but you're very unlikely to be a very successful entrepreneur in this context. Yeah, again, so many good points in there. Um, I don't want people to miss a lot of our audience. You know, they, they don't, they, they feel a bit stuck in education and, and they, they, education can make them think that they're stupid because they, they're not necessarily enjoying memorizing something and repeating it a week later. And, 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 and for some people that that's wonderful, but that for a lot of people, they then come out of school thinking that they're not only stupid, but they don't have the experience either. And it's not the case. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, we're all built differently and, and learn differently. And I think there's a really interesting point in this that you know, I wonder if, um, you know, if, if you, if you look back now, I bet you've been learning your whole life, right? I mean, it's not like you stopped learning because you weren't in school anymore. But even today, with all your success and what you're doing, you're still learning, right? And I think that's the thing about when you put yourself into challenging situations, 
and, and build a business like you have done from scratch into this incredible company that you're still you're learning every step of the way right and that's the key you never stop learning just because you left university you don't stop learning and i think that's the key right yeah so i, I couldn't i mean i just couldn't agree more uh, so i mean to your point of people feeling stupid uh you know that um my mum used to say to me that, that there's only one person in the world that can make you feel inferior uh, and that is you uh, so um, you know, you, sometimes it ta- it takes um, some inner confidence to and a bit of Teflon on the exterior to just brush stuff off. But there's only you can make yourself feel inferior, and I think that extends to stupid as well. So um, so you know, you just got to believe. If you believe you can, then you can. Uh, and you know and. And, and in terms of learning, I love learning. I love meeting new and interesting people. I love asking the questions uh, rather than answering them. And, uh, and I say to our leadership team in our business, uh, I'm sort of consistently saying this, but we've got a lot of people. You know, we're a business that's, uh, what, 21 years old and or 22 years old. And, um, and, and we've got lots of people in our business that have worked for us for 10, 15 years. And the way that I explain it to them is, is in footballing terms. And so as I sit here today, I look out over the theatre of disappointment that is Bolton Wanderers. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and, it's, um, and so, so if, if I take Bolton today, yeah, so wherever they are now, I think they're in League One, whatever that is, old money, third division, and um, I'm not in a great state, you know, certainly not from their heyday of being in, uh, in Europe. So, um, so if somebody came along today, not that anybody would be crazy enough to do it, but if somebody did put a hundred billion today into Bolton Wanderers, it is conceivable that within ten years that they can be definitely in the Premier League, possibly in the top six, and possibly playing back in Europe again. Now, if that were the case, how many of the management or the players? that are there today, do you think will still be there if they happen to be lifting the Champions League trophy in 10 years' time? And the answer would be very few, if any. Yeah. Uh, and, and so why should that be any different in business? Yeah, it's a very good point. The, the way that I think about that is we started as a business following our sort of famous one-pound bet story with three of us in an office, and, uh, and, and that was it. I mean, literally, three of us in an office about the size of my office today. Uh, and today we're, you know, whatever, 4,000 people with logistics businesses and recycling businesses and mobile phone businesses and retail businesses and B2B businesses doing whatever, 1.7 billion of sales. And I was there at the beginning and I'm there now. What on earth gives me the right to still be here today if I still only had the same knowledge that I had at the beginning? And so some of that knowledge I will learn on the journey, but other bits of that knowledge or the vast majority of that knowledge, I have to go out and seek, whether that's reading books, listening to podcasts, whatever it might be. And personally, uh, I, I can't read very well. It's not to say I can't read, but I read super slowly. Uh, and, um, and so I really struggle to read books, but I love audio books were a godsend to me. And so the other thing with audio books is my return on time invested is incredible. 
So I've got a speaker in the shower where I'll listen to Desert Island Discs. Uh, and uh, I've got uh, I've, you know a whole range of audio books that I listen to in the car when I'm on a sunbed on holiday. Uh, you know, I'm always trying to find a way to use the time because genuinely I'm interested. It's not that, you know, always robotically trying to learn. I'm genuinely interested in other people's stories and what can I learn from that? And what and one of the biggest th- things that I've learned over the years is you can learn something from everyone because you can learn as as much what not to do as what to do. And, and don't, you know, the, the old phrase of, um, you know, be the best version of yourself, not the not a second rate version of somebody else. But but you will be, you know, a jigsaw of little parts of lots of other people that you take influences and recommendations from. But when you look at somebody doing something in a way that you wouldn't want to do it, um, you know, learn from that, too. You know, when I when I look at Alan Sugar on The Apprentice, I, I refuse to watch it. I cringe, uh, I, I, and it infuriates me um, that he perpetuates this "you're fired." You know, this is how a boardroom in a business works. What a load of rubbish! You know, any business that operates like that has got an extremely short shelf life. It might make good TV, but it perpetuates a myth across the public. Uh, you know, so, but I look at that. I never talk to anyone in our business like that. You don't keep good people if you talk like that either. I mean, no, no, it, it, like, it, it actually does. It is a little bit damaging to business culture because it gives people the impression that a boss is like that. And, and, and what you're talking about there, you know, we, you can learn from anybody is so true. I remember my accountant in my company t- teaching me sales. You know, people like accountant don't know how to sell. You know, you, you know, you think you can't learn from an accountant how to sell. Well, you listen to them talk genuinely about a business they love, and you'll 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 see a good salesperson. You know, like it's um, so you're so right. You can, and, and people leave, don't they, if you treat them that way? I don't understand how that's perpetuated as a, as a way of doing business. No, I, and you know, I, so I don't think it makes good TV, but the BBC obviously do. But the BBC <laughs> well, couldn't be a, they couldn't be any further from understanding business. <laughs> no, well, I, I also have an issue with Dragons Den in a similar way because I feel yeah, like you know, those people could those people could help those people coming up on stage without needing to take equity off them. They could just give them an intro to someone at Sainsbury's or give them some support and mentorship. It doesn't always have to be about how much more money they make, but it is, um, yeah. I guess, TV. But um, but I think that needs to change because that TV influences how people think things work. Um, and, 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 you know, there's a couple of things you've said that, I, again, I don't want people to, to, to miss it. Um, first of all, I'm wondering if we got a scoop and you might soon be uh, helping Bolton a football team uh, get into the Premier League. It's, it's a scoop here that you might soon be investing in them, taking them to the Premier League. No, so the, I've, I've been, I get offered it regularly. Uh, the, I can um, imagine, so, yeah. So, <laughs> somebody, somebody, somebody once gave me a great piece of advice, which is how to make a small fortune out of uh, football is unquestionably to start with a big one. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So how, how, do, you, how do you become a millionaire? You, you start as a billionaire and buy a football club, exactly, yeah. yeah. But um, I, think, I think what you're saying there about, you know, the um, process, though, is, is really important for people listening. Like, so I, I, even I had a similar experience. I, I worked when I was 14 years old in a butcher's shop 
And all my friends were working at, you know, HMV was popular, then all these kind of brand name companies and almost looked down on me because I was working in this, this crappy uh, little butcher shop. But I learned how a small business works working in that butcher shop. I looked how, watched how he treated his suppliers better and well and decently. And that's why he got the better cut of meat than Sainsbury's because the same delivery driver was coming to him first because he had a relationship. So you can actually learn a lot working with the underdog as well, right? I mean, that, but you wouldn't think so. You'd think it's go work with the, the best, but that doesn't necessarily teach you how to, how to win, right? Or how how to how to do well in business yeah absolutely. i couldn't agree more so I, I so even today so you know with you know whatever the billion plus stuff that we buy uh you know we i always talk to our trading teams of we never buy anything from anybody all we ever do is convince people to sell things to us and you know an old guy once told me that well bought is half sold uh and uh and and, and relationships with um, with suppliers are you know as important, if not more important. But I wouldn't be, I wouldn't go as far as more important, but definitely as important as the relationships with our customers. I, I remember when we were really small as a business, and Bosch delivered a whole container load of stuff to us and never invoiced us for it, and uh, and somebody in our purchase ledger team worked it out. Uh, and came to tell us and and said, you know, what should we do? So what do you mean, what should we do? What, what kind of question is that? Uh, ring them and tell them. Uh, and I remember Colin Blake was the CFO at Bosch at the time. Uh, and I remember picking the phone up to him and saying, well, it's a bit embarrassing this. Uh, I don't want to get anyone at your end in trouble. Uh, but you need to know this because obviously we'll pay for it. But you, it might be you might have an error that might be creating it elsewhere with people that are not so honest, uh, and mm. and you pay that forward. You put trust in the tank there, that you know you don't know when you're going to cash it in, and that's not why you do it. But three years later, you might be hitting some hard times, and I might have to ring Colin and say, "Hey, Colin, uh, you know, got a bit of a problem, uh, but you know, let's say we can't pay you this week, but don't worry." It'll be fine. Stand on me. It'll be fine. Uh, and uh, and and actually, you learn when you can trust people in the difficult times, not in the good times. Uh, mm. So you know, so building those relationships with suppliers and how you treat them consistently, all the way through, is important. And one of the things that I say to our people is that consistency builds trust, and inconsistency destroys trust. And so, if you, Actually, if you behave like an arsehole all the time, but you do it consistently, then actually people know what they're going to get and they know how to deal with you. Yeah. But if you one day you're the nicest guy in the room and the next day you're a blustering idiot and the next day that you're shouting at people and then the following day you're a really nice guy again, people don't trust you because they don't know what they're going to get. And so consistency over a long period of time really does build the trust uh, in, in you, whatever your style is. Yeah. Again, it's just so many important things I don't get taught enough. In, in the business world that you're talking about here. And I, I want to pick them out. Moral code, right? Moral code. The, the ethics of how you operate is literally your personal brand, right? It, it is how you end up 
be, I think, being successful. This this image that people seem to have and are taught in business that somehow it's about treading on people to get ahead. And, you know, like I had a six, exactly a similar situation that you talked about there where someone hadn't invoiced us for something in one of my companies. And actually, I my own moral code was tested. Because there was a business instinct in me initially to say, oh, well, great, that, you know, that's cash flow we can leverage until they figure it out. And I remember going to my business partner and saying, oh, you know, we, this, this hasn't, this, we haven't been invoiced for this. And my business partner saying, we absolutely right now need to tell them and pay that. That is not right. They need that money. You know, and so and, and I learned something about my business partner in that moment, how decent she was. And she kept me on the straight and narrow because I think sometimes in business you can accidentally get corrupted, especially if you're surrounded by the wrong people. Right. So but knowing your own moral code now, there's no way on earth I would ever even contemplate not paying that invoice. But there was a moment there. And I think sometimes you're subconscious, you get trained, you hear the media about people that did bad but did well, you know, and, and that, that teaches you the wrong thing. And I think what you're highlighting there is, is not only, you know, watch out on your moral code, but, but also um, do, do right by, by people like suppliers. Don't see them as get the cheapest price out there. Get them, see them as partners and watch your business thrive, right? I think that, that's the things I take from what you just said. Yeah, so, uh, so the way that we think about that in our business uh, the way that we try and sort of train that out, if you will, is um, is make decisions that would make your mum proud. Mm. So um, that means a slightly different thing for everybody. But if you had to go and have dinner with your mum at the end of the day and explain to you what you'd done, would she be proud of the decision that you'd taken? And if the answer mm. is yes, the cost is just the cost long term that decision will be right and that for me that's been tested a few times um probably um uh, one of them was probably one of the darkest days i guess actually that we ever had in the business where um in one of our um depots we had a um a recycling machine that that basically think about it like a revolving lawnmower that smashed up all the um all the polystyrene and uh, and there was a, a tragic accident where um, the, one of the lads in one of the young lads in there had sort of he, he climbed on top of it somehow uh, and gone past all the safety guards to to kick it to free it and fallen into it. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he died. Uh, and uh, as about as brutal a, and, and as horrible a death as you could have. And so, so it, and I think it was about, if I remember rightly, it was about a week before Christmas. It was certainly within the few days before Christmas. And, uh, and so I found out about this, obviously, pretty quickly after it had happened. And, and, right, I'd never dealt with anything like this before on this scale. So what do we do? So you take the advice. Obviously, we've got our health and safety people, right? We've got our legal people. What do we do? Uh, and, and all the advice that came back was, um, you can't, you can't, you, as in me, can't do anything, uh, because you can't speak to anybody because of liabilities and because of this and because of that and so on and so on. And I said, well, hang on a minute. You know, there's, there's a family involved here. At the very least, we've got to reach out to them. I don't know what we can do, but to not acknowledge that is, would be a complete and utter failing in leadership. And they said, no, you cannot do it because the what you potentially open the company up for might be catastrophic for the company. And I said, well, I think that's a risk worth taking um, because 
the, the, the guidance was I couldn't imagine going to have dinner and say, yeah, I did nothing. In that, in that moment that mattered, I did nothing. Oh, no, totally wrong. So I rang um, around at the time uh, the three or four main investors in the business to say, look, this is the situation and this is the risk that I'm about to take. And so it's really important that you are aware that this is the risk that I'm about to take and this is why. And every single one of them said, well, it's just the right thing to do. Uh, and and so I got in the car and drove down to Radlett, it was, uh, and went to the uh, house of his mum and dad and sat there uh, and, uh, and and had a chat with him. I remember they were Queen's Park Rangers fans, and we talked about Bolton Wanderers playing Queen's Park Rangers, and I got a restricted view ticket and sitting behind the post. And, you know, they were just really nice people. Uh, and And they ended up suing the business because... Um, that's what they were advised to do, and it never became personal. And yeah. um, and uh, and it was all the financially, you know, which we, we, we helped out where we could in the end. But the point was more in the moment that matters. What's your moral guidance with it? And so, so consistency is treat every customer as if they were your grand. Our people in our call centres know what that means. It's different for everybody. But it, it means you don't need an 800-page manual for what happens if in every eventuality. And when you're spending company money, we give people incredible autonomy. We break virtually every rule around expenses, guidance, and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're booking a train ticket, we don't really need great rules around it. If you were spending your own money, what would you do? So therefore, if you're explaining to your mum at the end of the day what you'd done, uh, would she be proud? And so if you keep gran happy and mum happy, a lot of other stuff just kind of falls away. Uh, and, and it's so true across so many different things in the business. Uh, and so so we try and keep the messaging around it really, really simple uh, and and keep it as a frame of reference. So So then if you're doing something and you're listening to a call, where you were speaking to a customer, let's say you decided to give them a £3,000 range cooker for free, which which our people could do if they wanted to. If I'm listening to that call with you and I go, really, Simon? Really? Would your mum be proud that you'd spent £3,000 of her money on that? Or would you have been much better with an emphatic apology and then sorted it out? Because my gran would never really want compensation if something went wrong, honestly. What she would want is a quick, fast, emphatic apology, and then she'd want you to bloody well sort it out. And actually, if you just do all that, most people are happy. Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's such great knowledge for anyone who's building a business or wants to start a business to kind of have a sit down with yourself and, and understand you know, your moral guidelines. I think what you're also talking about there is is stay true to yourself no matter the advice you have around you because i mean lawyers of all due respect and, and they, they have to protect you but they're not you right so so you 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 have that sense of responsibility i actually felt like a gut 
pain when you're telling me that story because it's hard you know so such a horrible situation you know in some respects you kind of I mean I I, I can't personally stand the sight of blood and I I hate the idea of anyone being in pain you know that's why I'm not a doctor I just couldn't do it I mean I all credit to them but even having to face that it's not what you want to do but you know it's the right thing to do and digging deep and saying no to people that for example lawyers trying to protect you that 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 that's not easy and like you say then you can you can you know as a person forget as a company do the right thing you know the, and then hopefully that leads through to the company doing the right thing because you as the leader do the right thing as a but it's really not easy for people so it's good to hear that story and i appreciate you sharing it as well because I, I i know it's not easy sharing these things and this is what you were saying at the beginning of this podcast about entrepreneurship not being an easy journey and and how you have to make these really tough tough calls and every single day probably put your business in jeopardy uh, and it makes me want to ask the next question, which is, uh, does your wife have uh, a cutlery business on the side that she's uh, she's doing to, uh, to just in case? Is, is she got the Rolls Royce rented out at weddings the weekend? How, how does it work on the personal side? Is it a very similar dynamic to what it was like for you when you were growing up inside your family? Um, so, yeah, so my, I'm very fortunate. My wife is hugely supportive uh, and, uh, and and she understands actually how much I enjoy uh, you know, I genuinely enjoy business as well, um, uh, and and she has huge respect for the always the principles of always on, uh, and she has huge respect for um, you do what you need to do. Uh, it's not to say she doesn't get irritated at times it, when it interferes with other things that we've planned, uh, and uh, but you know I I am very lucky that. Both she and you know we've got five kids, so um, so you know her and the kids are hugely supportive, and I, you know I reciprocate on that. That um, you know I go to um, all the things that you know I try to go to. I can't make I, there's no way I can make them all, uh, but you know I, like for example I had a, I've got an investor call at half five uh, this evening, and. Uh, and Sally made the point this morning that Bear, who's our youngest, is has got his first football training session with his new team tonight, six till seven. Uh, and it's super important for him that I take him. It's like, right. So you know she's right. Uh, and uh, and actually, James, the investor that I'm speaking to this evening, uh, he'll understand as well. So uh, So I sent him a WhatsApp to say, look, uh, I can't do half five, and this is why. So don't I don't need to lie about why. It's a very good reason that's authentic on why. Uh, and uh, but I can speak to you. I can call you just after six when he starts his training session. You might just get a bit of football noise in the background. Uh, and and he came back. Interestingly, he came back to me and he said, "Well, I can't do that because I'm picking my son up from football at half six. <laughs> uh, so so we've arranged to speak at half seven. Uh, and and so, you know, so I, that I might get done at nine o'clock tonight with that call. Uh, and so it does intrude into life all the time. But, um, you know, Sally is, uh, you know, brilliant. She runs home. So I don't think about stuff at home. She runs home. So she runs the business of our life at home. And, uh, and you know, and that is a full-time job in its own right. And she's, uh, she always says, you know, when... When she goes to things and people say, um, what do you do for a job? Um, uh, and, and she's like, well, it's a bit difficult to describe, really. Uh, and people say, oh, so you're just a stay-at-home mum. 
well, uh, no, uh, but she reckons she's the worst paid person and I would probably agree with her uh, for what she does. <laughs> well, if she divorced you, she might get a payoff and be all right then, but uh, you know, hopefully that never happens. But yeah, I know, I know, I know what you mean. And, and actually, I, I was a full-time father for two years and I, I built 18 companies. Being a full-time parent was the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, yeah, that, so I, you, I, would never, about... I would never do role swap with her, ever. No, it, it's to, so, you know, it is, I think that's the number one most difficult entrepreneurial thing to do. Look after people who don't listen to you. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, you know, sure, you can go yeah. and have a coffee for an hour and keep quiet. Not if you've got a three-year-old that wants you to give them a cookie. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's, there's nothing. You, and so I do think, you know, um, you know, single parents to start businesses literally, I think, should get an award from the Queen every year. Like, I don't know how you can do both. And, and, I, and we have a lot of our audience that are, and I'm always, like, in awe. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I also, I mean, I don't know what your feeling is on this, but I think the people you surround yourself with when you first start a business could literally be the reason you make it or not. Because I've been involved, I've, I've invested in 73 businesses, and what I've noticed is the ones that failed are the ones where the founders don't have support from their ecosystem. They're like, it's 6 o'clock, where are you? You know, why, you know, you love the business more than me, don't you? That almost like pitch. And, and that, that is destructive. But if you have support, it's exactly the opposite. You literally thrive in business because you have the right person behind you. And, and I'm pretty sure that your wife is the reason the business is successful today. Uh, I'm sure she's listening. She'd be nodding her head right now. So, yes, yeah, she, uh, and honestly, she uh, is a huge part of it without any doubt whatsoever. To be able to just go and do things without having to worry about that and she deals with all that end of our lives uh and the stability that that creates um you know and and getting home and having the kids there and having still having the best of all worlds she firmly creates all that Uh, and i couldn't agree more with you for you know any single parent that is trying to get started for themselves and the barriers are so high uh, that I, you know, I, I'm with you on uh, on applauding that to to, to the end. The, the grittiness of it as well. Though, why, why I notice often they do succeed though. It's almost because back to your your story. You know, you have no choice, right? You've started this. You're all in. Um, and actually, I'd like to go back to that because I, I've, for this podcast, as a lot of listeners know, we normally ask a, a series of questions. I haven't asked you any of them yet because I've enjoyed the story <laughs> so much, John. And, and it's, it's in your knowledge and your honesty and your authenticity of how to build a business is, is, is refreshing and needed more in the business world because of present media plays, as we mentioned earlier, that do kind of position businesses, dog eat dog and, and you know, get the cheapest price and, 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 and all costs win. That's not how real businesses get built, not ones that love. So I love I love your authentic insight. I wanted to ask. I mean, there's a legendary story, uh, and when I googled you, and I'm sure many people are googling you right now that are listening. You know, the story of this bet came up. I wanted to be in that room. I wanted to understand this bet and how it played out exactly. So, so you sit there, and, and the three of you. There was three of you at the beginning, right? And you and you said, right? I what was the exact bet, and 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 what? Who has anyone won yet? I mean, how do you how how to determine uh, the end game? Has someone been paid paid a pound, or is it still yeah, an ongoing yeah, yeah. bet? Yeah, the pound sits behind my bar at home. Uh, so um, so so when I was so aged, I guess fourteen through to uh, eighteen before I disappeared off to go and uh, travel for six, eight weeks to get out of the country. Uh, I worked at a hotel called the Last Drop Hotel. And uh, and, and actually, um, working there was probably one of the luckiest things I ever did in so many different ways. 
there was a restaurant manager there that uh, that taught me an incredible lesson, which I still live with today. And actually, our customer service ethos is founded on, uh, which is uh, the value of tips. So getting somebody who you have absolutely no power, if you like, over to do anything for you to freely give you money they don't have to give you. That was how we sort of explained the concept of a tip. And so you earn a tip. Uh, and you have to be a chameleon. You have to learn different things. Uh, and for one table, it might be some posh old gent that you, oh, hello, sir, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, blah, blah, yeah. uh, and, and, and deal with him. And then there might be a young couple in the corner with a kid that actually... You know, can I warm the bottle of milk up for you? Do you want me to puree the carrots before we bring them out? How do we deal with that and have a bit of a laugh with them? Um, and, and you've just got to fit yourself to whatever is the situation demanded. Uh, and, uh, and, and he was brilliant at teaching us that. And I did lots of different jobs ac across this hotel. And within the hotel, uh, interestingly, actually, uh, I, it's where I met Sally as well. Uh, so, so I, you know, I got valuable lessons. I got, uh, I met my wife there. I, um, uh, and I also met a guy called Alan, who was an enigma of an individual. Uh, there was a pub within this, the, it was called the Last Drop Village, and, and within there was a pub. And so we used to go in, so we would work split shifts, uh, sort of 10 till 3 and then 7 till 11 uh, in the restaurant. And so there was, you know, in a three-hour split shift break, there's not really anything to do. So you'd go in the pub and play pool with the other waiters and what have you. And on a Friday afternoon, Alan was a van driver. And, uh, and he would come in regular as clockwork at three o'clock on a Friday with his wife, Maggie. And, and they'd sit there and do the telegraph crossword. And, uh, and he would read books about quantum mathematics um, and... And he had further degrees in maths and quantum maths and rope theory and God knows what else. And, and anyway, and he was in and, and I just got to know him through being chatty and being interested in other people. Uh, and, and, and as a result of that, we, uh, we started playing. He was into playing golf. So we play the odd game of golf together. We'd play pool. Um, and we always used to have an honorable one pound bet. And, uh, and so whether it was a game of pool, whether it was a game of golf, it was never more than a pound and the pound always got paid. And so roll forward, uh, Alan was talking to me about this thing called the internet. So this was in 98. Um, you know, when you think Amazon started in 97, that made Alan pretty revolutionary, certainly as a van driver. Uh, and, uh, and so when we used to have a beer on a Friday afternoon, he'd be chatting about this thing called the internet. And as the years rolled on, I was then um, uh, I, I was then went working from the warehouse. Uh, I then worked for a kitchen distributor, another kitchen distributor, and I ended up running with another guy the appliance business for Moven Kitchens. And I was chatting; to, he was telling me about the internet, and I was chatting to him about. I reckon we could sell appliances on that. And, uh, and he was saying, don't be ridiculous. It's not for selling stuff on. It's all about information organization. And, and so this was then 1999. And, uh, and actually, God, was he right? We should have started Google. Google didn't ex exist in the UK then. Alta Vista was the main search engine. 
Uh, and um, and I was going on about it and on and about it every sort of Friday. And in the end, on Christmas Eve 1999, Alan basically said, we were in the pub, uh, and Alan said, look, I, I've, had, I've genuinely had enough of you going on about this. I'll sell this. And by that time, I had my own kitchen shop um, retailing kitchens in Manchester. And, uh, and, and he said, I bet you a pound you don't give up what you're doing to start this business of selling appliances on the internet. And that was Christmas Eve, 1999, the one pound honorable bet. Uh, and, uh, and so then Christmas Day, Boxing Day, and the day after, I then set about uh, creating a what I now know to be called a database, which was a spreadsheet. And, and I'm not a techie. I couldn't be further from being a techie. Uh, and Alan had said, uh, the only addition he'd made to the one pound bet was, if you give me the information, I'll build you a basic website. And, uh, and so, so, so kind of that's what happened. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, so it was a one pound bet. Uh, he, did, um, he did pay the bet. Uh, unfortunately, really sadly, Alan's no longer with us. Uh, he, he, he died last year. And, so, uh, so yeah, so, uh, and, and, and actually he left the business about, and I then convinced him to come and work in the business with me. And, uh, and so we had some, you know, amazing years together, but he genuinely, you know, when people say, oh, he's left the business because of ill health, uh, Alan genuinely did leave the business because of ill health. Uh, and, uh, and I used to take him once a year, who used to take a whole day and take him round all the different sites of the business to show him even though you're not involved anymore, he would, you know, he felt involved in part ownership as until the day he died. So, um, you know, it was always a really proud day to go and take him round and, and then, you know, go to the pub and, and sort of, you know, trot out all the old stories and have a good old reminisce, uh, about the early days. So, yeah, so that's the, that, that's the one pound bet story and it did get paid. <laughs> It's such a lovely story, John. And you know what it does? This story uh, kind of encapsulates a lot of the things that you've said here, like, you know, learn from everybody. You know, Alan's... My my first serious girlfriend, her um, her dad was a builder on a building site, you know, and there's an image of what a builder on a building site is like. This guy was a genius. I used to play Trivial Pursuit with him and, like, lose in a second. You know, it wasn't a thing he didn't know about the universe, like mind blowing. I mean, he's um, he's just he's still alive. He's a genius, you know. Like, but he works on a building site, so people's image. And Alan is a truck driver talking about quantum physics, you know, and and how you know gets you that sparks that thing in you about the internet. And 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 I just I just think that's kind of a very good example of of what you were talking about earlier. That you know, don't judge a book by its cover. I guess is the topical way to put it. But like understanding what what, what someone can bring to you if you listen carefully enough. And then uh, I just love the whole story. Yeah, I think it was Dale Carnegie that said, "You can't be interesting until you're interested." Uh, and, right. uh, and it and, and it's it, I've always found it is genuinely amazing what you find uh, out about people. I remember David Wilkinson, who was our trading director, once interviewing people. Uh, so he was interviewing this one person, and when we were interviewing people, we. Um, we always wanted to find out something interesting about them. 
Uh, and uh, and so uh, David was saying, you know, tell me something interesting about you. And the guy sort of sat there and went, I can't really think about anything. I can't think of anything that's interesting. Dave went, oh, come on. There must be something. I mean, I don't know. Have you ever done juggling and fire eating or something like that? And the guy went, oh, yeah, I've done that. And Dave was like, what? Of course, and he went, done that. Yeah, 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 I've done fire eating. And away the conversation goes. And I find the most interesting people that I meet in life are people that have got stories to tell. And because stories are interesting. But to get stories, you've got to put yourself in a situation to meet each interesting people or do interesting things or go to interesting places. And then when you do that, you've got to be interested in them. And out of the stories come more stories. And you notice, you know, when you sit around with people at dinner parties, you know, it's not always the good-looking ones that are, that are, you know, are the most attractive people. The most attractive people are the most interesting people. Uh, and, and, and I just get drawn to the, I seem to get drawn to these people, um, like, a, you know, like filings to a magnet, if you like, uh, but asking lots of questions and having the confidence to ask questions. Uh, I, I remember we sponsored um, Britain's Got Talent, um, which commercially was something of a, a car crash for us. Um, but as a result, um, I ended up having a beer with Simon Cowell one night and, uh, and we, and we were sat in his hotel room in Manchester and, uh, and I thought it was popping in for about an hour. Uh, and I got there about 11 o'clock at night and, um, and out of it, uh, so I left about half five in the morning and for two people that have never met to be able to have continuous conversation over uh, a few beers uh, for that long, you've got to be able to ask good questions and you've got to be interested and you've got to be able to open and share things. Uh, and he was incredibly open and interesting about, you know, and I was asking standard stuff like, you know, what's the most interesting thing you've ever been, most interesting place, what's your biggest cock up, uh, who screwed you over? Uh, obviously, I'm not going to reveal all the answers. Um, and that'd be another um, scoop if you could let us know. Uh, yeah, but but the interesting <laughs> thing was uh, one of the things out of it. I was chatting to him about my one of my sons wanted to go into the music business, and I said, you know, what would your recommendation be? I said because I've been talking to Harry about, you know, you're not going to learn anything about the music business over the next three years at university. We've got to find a way to get you into the music business. Uh, uh, and so I said to Simon, you know, what would be the chance of Harry coming doing an internship or something in your place in London? Uh, uh, and he said, oh, no, you definitely don't want to do that. Uh, and, and I said, oh, right, why not? He said, L.A. would be much more interesting. Uh, and, and I was like, right. And anyway, so he said, yeah, if you, if you want him to come and do a year internship in L.A., uh, then that would be no problem at all. Uh, so and people say these things, but then they don't follow through. Uh, and fair play to him, he absolutely followed through. And I remember getting home, I got home about six o'clock in the morning, uh, and Sally had said to me when I went out, all right, if you're going out having a beer tonight, no problem at all, but do us a favor and be home by midnight, will you? Because we were going on holiday the next morning and we were flying about 10 o'clock. Uh, so you can imagine what I walked back into. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it was like, yeah, you've been out till this time in the morning again, and uh, uh, and, and I went, whoa, hang on, babe. <laughs> I've got Harry. <laughs> Look what I've got for Harry. Uh, and, and, but I didn't set out. I, so I didn't set out with that objective. 
But the serendipity of being open and having those conversations, you never quite know what's going to happen. I think there's a, there's a really interesting uh, subtext to this point here, which I, I think would be useful for the listeners. Is um, you know, you sponsored something, you, you took a risk, you sponsored something, you did something. You could argue that maybe commercially it was a failure, using your words. I think that, uh, but through every failure comes a, a silver lining if you leverage it properly. And in this case, you know, having that conversation and doing that thing for your family, you know, and 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 that moment where you know it's not necessarily a financial success, but it is a personal success. You can win by making an effort in other areas. You you hustled. You hustled there. I mean, sometimes that word seems negative now, isn't it? But I, I think it's a really good word. You know, you, you, you kept, you, you leveraged the moment, enjoyed the moment, uh, enjoyed meeting Simon Cowell, but you, you managed to also find another way to perhaps build benefit into the situation that isn't just a commercial one. Yeah, well, I learned a load of stuff off him as well. We, we ended up becoming quite friendly. And... Um, you know, he's there's a, an infinite amount more to him than the the public's persona that uh, that gets presented, as ever with these things. Of course, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and at the true. time, I didn't know it was going to be a, a commercial um, mess for us, uh, and and that was nothing to do with him. You know, he could not have been more brilliant uh, in an open and welcoming and all the rest of it. Uh, and when I say it was, you know, so the the whole A O Ramones A O Let's Go. Um, we definitely landed through Britain's Got Talent, A-O, let's go. What we forgot to land was uh, what on earth does it mean and who on earth are A-O and why. Um, so we actually <laughs> learned some incredibly valuable lessons out of it, but they were just very expensive lessons. I still like it, though. A-O, let's yeah, go. No, Different yeah. rhymes. <laughs> I can see why it got, it got through. It, it got through the marketing department. So we have this fellow, which is our, uh, which is our A-O bear. Um, and, For those uh, listening spent, on Spotify, we'll, uh, we'll put an image on later. Yeah, there's a little green bear. You just you just missed it. You can do a competition for people to win him because uh, you can't buy an AO bear, uh, and um, and we actually get quite a lot of demand from people for the AO bear. Uh, so uh, I want to do. Kit- I want to do. Um, who who screwed who screwed you over? Put it in the comments, and um, and the best answer gets a green bear. Totally inappropriate, probably competition, but I like it. I like yeah, great. I like that no, question absolutely. a lot actually. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna ask that question to people because I I think you can learn a lesson from people's uh, experiences like that, right? Like you know, what did you learn from being screwed over by someone? You know, and and, and understanding that sometimes these things are good luck despite sounding like bad luck at the time, right? It's, it's just so many. So, uh, yeah, yeah, and inter- and interestingly, when we did our IPO in 2014, um, one of the things I learned was I've never done an IPO before. I'm a lad from Bolton that flogs washing machines and fridges and tellies and stuff. I don't know anything about it. I'm, not, I'm no financial wizard. Uh, I certainly don't do any complex financial engineering or anything like that. Uh, and what I learned was I was in a world where uh, I genuinely didn't have a clue what I was doing. And, uh, and I joked about it that I was Mr. Green in a green suit with a green tie and a green hat, uh, walking into these meeting rooms with these people who play this game every day going, hi, please screw me over. I'm ripe. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I'm and green, so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what I decided to do is I decided to educate myself really fast. And so in 2000, from 2008 to 2014, there hadn't been many IPOs. And so I got a list of all the ones that there were. So, for example, there was uh, Mike Ashley, uh, um, at now Fraser's was Sports Direct, um, Ed Woodward at Man United, uh, Grenville, Grenville at Countrywide, there was Foxton's, 
Uh, who else did I go and see? And I wrote to them all. I wrote them all in a lovely handwritten letter. The, val- the value of a handwritten letter, by the way, uh, is, is never to be underestimated. You have taken the time, uh, infinitely better than an email, uh, and write it in ink. I write in green ink, uh, which meant to be a sign of madness, mm-hmm. I understand, but it's more associated because of the brand. <laughs> Uh, and I wrote it's them all a superhero, a superhero. <laughs> yeah. and, I, I, and I wrote them all a letter basically to say, look, I'm doing this transaction so that we can turbocharge our business to the next level. I've never done it before. I know I'm going to get screwed. So I just want to minimize said screwing. Would you mind giving me an hour? And every single person that I asked to give me an hour gave me an hour. Uh, and, wow. and I went through a standard list of questions, which was, um, you know, who did you trust? Uh, who screwed you over? If you were going to do it differently, what would you do differently? Uh, you know, all those standard things. Uh, and, you know, and, and what's really nice actually out of that is I've ended up making quite a few friends as as a result of that. Uh, and I learned lots of lessons that informed lots of things uh, on how we should, how we should do things. Um and, and they all now feel a little bit like they've helped us and they have on that journey. Uh, and uh, yeah, I remember having uh, lunch with Tim Steiner at Ocado afterwards. And Tim's been a long-term help to us as a business. Um, and, uh, and at the time, you know, he hadn't really taken a, a, anything out of Ocado. Uh, and yet we'd done this big transaction and he'd given me an absolute ton of help. And he was like, you're going to end up making more out of that than I've made out of this. Uh, but said it with, you know, no resentment, no jealousy, uh, just in fun and jest. And, uh, and, and it is amazing how people will help. I think, I think, again, you know, for the listeners, that, that I want to boil this down to something that they could digest for a second. And I think the brilliance of this point is that if you don't know something and you ask someone They'll feel like part of your journey by helping you. I mean, a lot of people ask us, um, you know, they want to raise money. They ask us for money. I'm an investor myself. So, and I always say to people, if you want to raise money, the best thing you could do is not ask for money. The best thing you could do is ask for advice because you'll get money. You know, so, so many people spend too much time um, acting like they know it all when actually people want to help you learn what you don't know. And so asking as well, the other lesson there that's so crucial I want people to pick up is, is you know, it doesn't matter how powerful someone is out there they're all they they've had they've all got there through help no one made it on their own right so i think that people do i respect if you're respectful and you you do it like you said you have handwritten letter you're you know you take the time and you're you're considerate of their time and and respectful then i i have i've had exactly the same experience there's no one on this planet that won't reply to you if you're talking to them about something that resonates with them and they can help Right. But if you demand from people, that's different. But but I, I think there's such an important lesson there. And, and it's nice to hear that, you know, friendships are born from that, too. And um, now you say, Ocado, I see a lot of parallels between your businesses, actually, um, even the, the, the fun nature of the businesses. Even um, I'm a big Ocado fan. So I think I uh, can see um, how by becoming friends, you might have also um, rubbed off on each other. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and to be fair, for completeness, um, uh, Nick Robertson at ASOS was in our little gang as well, uh, where we used to share loads of ideas. We didn't compete at all, uh, and we were at different stages across the business, really open. And uh, you know, I, th- I like to think that all three of us have helped each other in some way uh, over the years. 
uh, and uh, and you know so so and it's nice to be nice you know it's nice to help people yeah. and yes there's massive constraints on time and you can't help everybody that asks for everything uh, and so that you know to, in in terms of your listeners it's then I guess how do you stand out from the crowd uh, and so yeah, do, you know do how you research do research on people you know and and how do you ask differently yeah. Yeah, I, I love the handwritten note thing. You know you're going to get flooded with green letters now. <laughs> Just get get ready on your inbox. But I think Nick will be pleased you mentioned him. He'll be, he's probably listening to this podcast now and like he's about to cross you off his Christmas list and say, I was there too. And then and luckily you've been there. So I, I just wondered if, um, did Sally give you a tip? You know, you mentioned earlier earning tips and learning how to earn tips and meeting Sally when you were working at the Last Drop Hotel. Was it, was, did you work together or was it just she, she, uh, she, she came there and, and, and met you? How did that happen? Uh, so she worked in the pub at weekends and I worked in the restaurant. Uh, I, and actually when we worked together, the truth of it is that, um, that we didn't get on or more, more to the point that, uh, I think she thought I was a bit of a knob, uh, and, um, <laughs> and, and softened over the years, I guess, uh, would probably right. be the nicest way to put it. Uh, but, um, I to interview her now and see if she still... She might still say that, you know. No, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, her tip at the time would have probably been, because um, I did work in the pub as well occasionally, but her tip at the time would have been, um, you know, you should clear the glasses too. Because uh, uh, she was always giving us grief because she always reckoned she did the vast majority of our work as well. Yeah. Well, that's another lesson there, isn't there? Sometimes the people you meet that you think aren't going to be friends because they're, they're different from you end up being the love of your life. But um, look, there's a few questions I want to ask you. I know you've got to go back to being um, the CEO and, and, and founder of, a, of a, an incredible company. So I want to let you get back to that. But I wanted to ask you what you felt success means to you today. How do you define success for yourself? How, how have you always defined success? Well, I think so I, I think that's a quite a multifaceted answer. Uh, so... So, so having, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, I would start that with a human answer. And so, you know, how do my kids turn out? Uh, and, you know, how would people speak about you when you're not in the room? And, um, and, and you know, and what impact do you have on the world? So I always say, you know, the world should be a slightly, I mean, when I say slightly, even fractionally better place for the fact you were in it. And so, you know, so if you're lying on your deathbed, the world is a better place because you were in it, then, uh, then you know, you probably had a worthwhile life. And, 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 and you can go into lots of multifaceted um, elements of that. Um, certainly, nobody ever bounces their grandkids on their knee and tells them how much money they made. Um, you bounce your grandkids on your knee and you tell them stories about what you did. And, uh, and so what did you do? What impact did you have? What were you part of? And so being part of founding a business, you know, there's 4,000 people that hopefully feel part of an ownership of this business. Uh, you know, I have the you know, genuine privilege of uh, having been there on day one. Uh, but I genuinely believe that everybody feels, feels part of it. And that's something that I'm really proud of. And, and so, so having a business that um, is genuinely scaled and looks after people and is profitable enables us to do lots of other things. Uh, and, uh, and so money in itself isn't uh, important, but it's actually important because it is an enabler to do lots of other things. Uh, 
Uh, and so how do you invest your time? What difference do you make? Um, you know, I take a huge amount of uh, pride out of the achievements of the team at Onside. Um, you know, they never cease to amaze me. And I, you know, the, it is incredibly humbling um, what they achieve and the, and the spirit that and the the energy i i view the, the that sort of under underprivileged um section of society uh, or disadvantage whichever way you want to look at it um as you know absolute gold at our feet economically as a nation uh, if we could tap into that by actually giving them the opportunity to realize their potential that would be it would be like the next immigrant wave that is already here uh, of amazing innovation and creativity. And so in my own small way, I try and play my part in uh, in making that a reality and, um, and, and try and bring a business-like mentality to, to how we run that, how we fund that, how we think about that. And, and, and we apply you know, the, the same principles that we do at AO into that organization. So for example, you know, we can build the biggest, shiniest youth clubs in the world. Uh, but actually, the difference is in the youth work uh, uh, and and the quality of those youth workers. And uh, the equivalent for context, so there's been, there's been about 700 youth clubs across the country that have closed over the last uh, seven or eight years. And that's the equivalent of closing 10% of all secondary schools, which would be politically unimaginable to do. Um, but youth clubs, no problem at all. And what's happened is that therefore there has been, and that's a much higher percentage of youth clubs. And so there's been a huge contraction in youth workers, just very naturally. And so you can't just build a building and expect that to do brilliant youth work. And so we've built a, a youth work academy. So centrally we've invested, God, I don't know, millions into it um, for how do we, because I don't think it's amazing building or amazing people. I, th I think the magic is one plus one equals 11 in that context. It's so true. And it's exactly how we think about it at work. But, you know, uh, amazing people make the difference. Uh, you know, magic in the moments that matter. Uh, our drivers uh, win or lose the, the, the magic with a customer in the first 0.1 seconds of them opening the door. Uh, and that takes a, a much bigger investment to get them to realize that and to recruit the right people. It just doesn't happen by accident. And so, 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 so it's a long-winded answer to your question because I think it covers so many different areas. How do you think about the impact on the community in which you live? How do you think about the impact of the, the people with which you work with? How do you think about your family and how you set themselves up set them up hopefully with the right principles and values for success in life. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, again, I, I, I would come back to the most simple of principles, which is when I think about that, would that make my mum proud? And, you know, the, apply that to all the different things that you're doing. Um, and, uh, and I, I watch so many people try and earn a vast amount of money that they can never spend. Uh, and it becomes a scorecard. And, and a wise old guy who's one of our investors, uh, Norman Stoller, said to me, once said to me, 
you spend the first third of your life learning how to do it. Um, uh, the second third of your life doing it and hopefully making it. And you should always spend the last third of your life giving it all away. Uh, whether that's knowledge that you're giving away, whether that's the money that you've made giving it away. Um, and you should just give the majority of it away. And you should enjoy all three. And, uh, and he's been super clear with me that the last third is by far the most fun. And when you're in the second third making it, the concept of giving it away doesn't sound like fun. He said, but I promise you, and he's 87 or 88 this year, uh, and, and, and he has genuinely taken more enjoyment. I think he'll have given over 100 million away by the time he's done. Uh, and he's had more pleasure out of giving that away than he's had out of making it, which is you know, a great uh, example to follow, I think. Yeah, and I think it actually highlights that you, you know, you can give a lot away. You don't need a lot of money to give people help. You know, I think sometimes people think they need a fortune to give away, but actually, I think what you're talking about there is the kind of principle that you get a lot more from helping someone else than just helping yourself, right? It, it, it's literally human instinct uh, in us that we feel more fulfilled helping others. So, and giving time is uh, time is our, yes. is everyone's most valuable asset. Uh, and, and so, you know, giving your time and your experience to people to, uh, to have a multiplier effect, uh, is, you know, is really important. And one of the things I say to people quite a bit is that, you know, if I ask you the question of who is the most influential, single most influential person in your life and why most people can very quickly go to who it is. And it's not allowed to be a family member. Um, and it's, you know, it's often a, a, an early teacher that had a, a real impact on someone's life. But normally, it's because, it, it's very rarely because someone gave you money. It's normally because somebody gave you time or wisdom or love or care or, or one of those things that absolutely anybody can give. Uh, and so, so then when you think about that, okay, so if you were asked, who have you helped? How many people can you say that you have helped? Uh, and, and, and are you happy with the scorecard uh, of, of how many people you've actually helped? Not what you've just donated to, what, not a check that you've written that's an irrelevance to you. Uh, and actually given your time and your thought and been you know caring enough to think about that for uh, for people is it, i think it's just a brilliant scorecard as a way to think about that great i agree and i think that that to me is the definition of success if you can take an hour to help somebody you know um that 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 is time is you say the most valuable thing and and if you can find that time to do that i'll tell you so one point i missed on that simon which i always um say to people as well is when you ask that question uh and you think of the person of whoever it was there's a link question which is do they know and i bet the vast majority don't know and what a lovely thing it would be for you to do now as you're thinking about that is to get a pen out, not an email, get a pen out and write a handwritten letter to that person and just say thank you. Because actually, that would be one of the first impacts that you would have, would be, to, that per, I promise you that person will open that letter 
and you will make their day. Just as simple as that, you will make their day. I think you might have just brought Royal Mail back from the brink. That should be, (laughs) they should see a flood, millions of notes going. Exactly when you said it, uh, two people popped in my mind and neither of them know it. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I'm going to do that. So thank you for inspiring me, John. And um, no, I, th- I think, and also for those listening, we, we will put the links to Onside Youth Zone down below, so you can read all about what what. Uh, yeah, John please and do. His and if there's one in your, there. if there's one in your area, one of the best things you can do uh, is volunteer to mentor the kids in the youth zones. Uh, and yes. uh, and I promise you, I promise anybody that does it. The mentor always gets more than the mentee out of the process. Totally. And uh, as a mentor myself, I can totally back that up. And you could do it on the website. I was looking on it this morning, and you can register yourself on the website to do that. It's all very easy. And I promise you, if you do, um, you, you will feel what success feels like when, when you when you help people in that way. For sure. And maybe one day they'll send you a note um, in green. I see a whole movement building here, but, yeah. uh, but really, I wanted just—I just—I could talk to you forever. I love uh, talking to uh, people that just share authentically their story, as you have done with our audience today. But I, I wanted just to uh, ask a question. I didn't give you an advance, so feel free to say you can come back another time and answer it if you don't feel comfortable. But I wanted to ask about—you know—when when you started the business, you saw the internet, thanks to Alan, and you know, becoming aware and educating yourself. You saw the power of the internet and what could be done, and saw the future really, along with you know. Um, Amazon and, and so on. You were there at the beginning of that movement, and with things like the metaverse and I guess Web three. Is if anyone listening today wants to start a business and they, they want they want to you know see the future. Is there is there anything you see in the future? Do you do you see the metaverse as a, as the future? How do you? What's your angle on it? Considering you've you spotted the future once. So I think that uh, my my fundamental principle is to um, start with the customer and work back. So be really clear about who your customer is and why. And, and then within that, what problems are you trying to solve and, and how are you trying to solve them? And, and so there's, there's lots of amazing technologies that have happened that have died because actually they're trying to solve a problem that no one cares about. And so it's really important that what you are doing is – uh, is contributing to solving a problem that, that people care about or innovating something to a level that people care about. And, uh, and so, so, so I think they're quite fundamental in how I think about businesses that I invest in or how we think about innovation uh, at AO. And, and, and then I think within that, there are, there's a time to be first, and a time to be fast. And, uh, and some big things, like the metaverse, uh, being first on, as a fundamental is not an option for many. You know, when you look at, uh, I mean, it, you know, Microsoft are just buying the gaming thing for $68 billion. There's not many people can write a check out of cash for $68 billion. Uh, and And so, you know, the world of big tech, and when you look at what, Facebook are investing annually now in the metaverse. Will it work? I don't know. Uh, you know, when Google started investing in driverless cars, everybody thought they were crazy. You know, and and now you know we, we you mentioned earlier, Simon, about driverless trucks. Uh, so 
So all these things are coming, but it's very unlikely the majority of your listeners are going to have the capital budgets to invest in 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 the the infrastructure, if you will. Um, I love the rationale of the way that Jeff Bezos explains space exploration, uh, which in essence is when he started Amazon, he didn't have to invent the postal service. He didn't have to invent the internet. He didn't have to invent all the infrastructure that went with all of it. What he only had to do was work out the business of how to piggyback on all that infrastructure to, to sell books. And so he views it, you know, sort of with great power comes great responsibility, if you like. So he's viewing that as he's in a position and he's interested in it in massively reducing the cost of space exploration. And where will that go infrastructurally? But that might help the next generation to have 8G that might enable this or might enable that in the same way that roads and railways and, and everything did in the past. So um, so I think the barriers to entry are now lower than ever. When you look at what Amazon have done with AWS and cloud computing, or well, it's not just them anymore, um, but the available technology from your bedroom is mind-blowing. Uh, you know, the power of what's in an iPhone 13 used to take up uh, a room that would have been probably 3,000 square feet. Uh, and, and access to things like the internet and access to the technology. I think access to teach yourself things through YouTube. Uh, I, I did a, a relatively brief mentoring session with somebody the other week who was complaining that he wasn't very good at marketing and that's why his business wasn't working very well. And the reality was he just wanted it to happen and he couldn't be asked putting in the work. Uh, and, and I said, well, how many tutorials on Google have you watched? How many YouTube videos have you watched to teach yourself this topic? That, that wasn't available 20 years ago. Uh, and, you know, if you want to go and search for it, there is an incredible wealth of free information to become a product topic expert. Uh, and so, so there's no excuse to not learn how to code, to not learn whatever the topic is, there is no excuse. And sort of all the way back to my comment earlier about your opportunity cost of time. Uh, and so, and, and my last point on it would be really focused on, you know, we could sell anything online. You know, we, we do deliveries for Simba mattresses, for Cotswold Furniture, for lots of other different companies, but I don't want to sell furniture online. I don't want to sell mattresses online. Um, you know, we're really focused on selling electricals. And so be really clear about what it is that you're going to do and be awesome at it and obsess about being awesome and be clear what problems that you're solving. Because if you're going to be average at it, um, then you'll probably, you know, there's a lot of average in a graveyard. Uh, and, and so you know, obsess about being awesome and, you know, think about your opportunity cost of time and, and go learn and go and get educated and go and do all the things that take you outside your comfort zone and uh, and leave you tired at the end of the day and, and everything that goes with, with all that. Um, so, and be creative and be cheeky and be imaginative and, and, and be all those things. Don't be conventional. 
I, uh, I love it. I love it all. And I, I appreciate your time, John. I could just keep talking to you, but I've got to let you go. And I know, um, I know you're busy. And I just want to sum up some of the things that I, I think, you know, I've, I've taken from today. Um, treat everyone like they're your gran. I like that. You know, general life code isn't, isn't a bad, bad thing. You know, assess your moral code. Um, I think the um, Alan Sugar might be a little bit upset today, um, but so be it. Maybe he can change his rhetoric a bit. I'd love to see you uh, do your own TV show one day. Uh, but maybe there's a beef between you and Alan now. But I can honestly say that I, 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 I think Alan is, is a great business person. But I think sometimes people listening to shows like that need to see the other side. They need to hear from people like you, John. And I want to thank you for sharing your, your insights. The opportunity cost of time. It's, it's a really important thing to think about. And, and actually, when you're young in particular, because a lot of our listeners are, are young, you know, go out there and, and leverage that time that you have and learn. And as John just said, you know, it's all there to be had. YouTube can teach you it all for free. There's programs, of course, like Onside Youth Zone and the Purposeful Project that are offering you help for free. You should, should jump in and be a part of these things. I think um, it's definitely... Uh, I, I, giving up what you're, you were doing earlier, John, you talked about this, giving up your, your original business to do the new business. Um, we didn't go into the details, but I, I felt there was something really important there for people to pick up on. That Sometimes you might be doing something that isn't what you're meant to be doing. And so sometimes giving up on what you have, thinking it's what you're meant to be doing, is some, a very hard thing to do, but very powerful. And that's something you did, John, you talked about earlier. You gave up a business you had. That's part of the bet you had. Um, that, and went and did the business you now have. And so sometimes that's people listening might be doing something they feel like they have to give it up, but sometimes that could be a very powerful thing. Learn from everyone. You know, you've got your Allens out there that um, supported, inspired John. And, you know, you, you should listen to these people and don't judge a book by its cover. Um, you're lucky if you work at the Last Drop Hotel. <laughs> you, uh, you might well uh, meet the love of your life and the people that are going to inspire you to do what's next. So don't, don't look down on yourself wherever you are right now. Because another quote I love is the only person that can make you feel inferior is you. I'm going to make that into a T-shirt, John. I love that. And I think, you know, so be proud of where you are now and, and, and enjoy it. And, 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 and I do think um, obsession on being awesome is a brilliant way to end the podcast. I think that that is so true. And everybody out there um, can be awesome if you take the time and give yourself that time to, to be awesome. And remember, John took 20 years to build his business. This is not an overnight success. So enjoy the journey and um, never overlook the value of a handwritten note to bring handwriting back to the world. But never underestimate that personal touch. And John, I want to thank you for taking your time out today to share your knowledge with us. And I really enjoyed it. And I know the audience will too. And I thank you for that and appreciate what you do and how you give back to the community and your story. And, and thank you so much for taking time. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's been really good to speak with you, Simon. Thanks very much. I hope you found today's podcast both inspiring and useful. And if you need more help, visit PurposefulProject.com where all the resources to help you start and grow a business are free.